Paul writes to us in Philippians. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider them loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. It's a real pleasure this morning to uh, have uh, uh, Charles Mickey speak for us today. Uh, Charles and I knew each other uh, in college. Uh, in 1966, uh, I went on to medical school, but Charles was held back. <laughs> he did graduate work at Abilene Christian and uh, finished his master's uh, eventually. Uh, he did advanced work even toward a... Uh, a PhD uh, work. Uh, but it's always been a pleasure to know Charles. Uh, I admired him. I looked up to him a great deal. His wife Kay is just a wonderful person. He, uh, he came to us uh, after we sought him uh, as an interim minister uh, on Sundays here in uh, late 2007 and began a a nine-month ministry with us in October of 2007 and stayed with us driving down every week from Houston uh, until 2008 in, at the end of June. And then, uh, excuse me, the end of Ju- June. And then Alan began his work here uh, in July. So that's a reminder that Alan's been here over 12, going on 13 years. What a know. But it was a time of joy uh, for our congregation to be associated with Charles. His messages were uplifting. Uh, They praised God. They lifted us up and made us grow closer to God. And it's uh, been a real uh, blessing uh, to be in touch with him through the years, through that way, and also to have him back today. Charles, thank you for coming and being with us. Thank you, Roger, and thanks to Alan for the invitation. Anybody else that had a hand in my being uh, invited to come back and be with you for today? What a blessing it is. Randy, thank you for leading us in those wonderful songs. I've known uh, Randy's family for a long time. His dad was one of my elders when I was preaching at the Bamel Church in Houston back in the 80s, and uh, his mom is still one of our uh, favorite people. We put up with Randy, but his parents were pretty great, so. (laughs) Great songs this morning. The last one I had not ever heard before or sung, and it touched me deeply. What suffering Jesus went through for us, and what a privilege it is. Just think about it, people. What a privilege it is to be together to praise his name. We sang earlier, Jesus, worthy Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is your name. 
And uh, I pray that because of some of the words we'll share today and the scriptures that we look at, that you'll go out of here with your, with your hearts encouraged and with your uh, energy revived for serving Him, for worshiping Him, not only when we're right here in this assembly, but when we're driving. Yes, you worship God as you drive. You worship God as you wash dishes, as you change diapers, as you push numbers at work, as you write speeches or teach children or whatever you do. God is worshiped by you in every breath of your life. It's not limited to a Sunday morning assembly when we're together. Uh, It's hard for me to believe that 12 plus years have passed since I began coming down here and preaching on uh, Sunday mornings during those nine months. It's really hard to believe, but then I look in the mirror and I think, yeah, well, I guess that is right. A few years have passed, and as you get to the age that Roger and I am, uh, Roger and I are, we, we have to admit, yeah, we're closer to the end by far than we are to the beginning in those college years. Kay and I will celebrate uh, 54 years of marriage this summer, and uh, she gets the greatest admiration and praise for putting up with me for all those years. I uh, read a story the other day about a guy that asked his wife, he said, uh, where would you like to go for your anniversary? She said, I want to go somewhere I haven't been in a long time. So uh, he suggested the kitchen. Uh, that wasn't very nice, but uh, he also said that he'd married Miss Wright. He just didn't know her first name was Always. I do like the story of the old preacher, and, and I certainly identify with that uh, these days. The old preacher who was dying. Uh, he knew that death was near, didn't know exactly when it was coming, but he was very, very sick, and uh, people in his church were coming to be with him. He specifically asked for two church members to come and be with him, and he designated the time uh, for the lawyer and the IRS agent uh, who were members of his church to come and be with him. Uh, they came, and uh, he motioned to them weekly to come over close to his bedside, one on each side. Uh, he reached out and took their hands, and they were wondering why he had called them there. He uh, had never really shown great affection or friendship toward either one of them. But on this occasion, they waited quietly. They waited. They waited Finally, one of them said, uh, would, you, would you kindly tell us why you called for us? We're honored to be here, but why did you call for us? And he said, well, weekly he said, the Lord died between two thieves and I intend to do the same. <laughs> Even those two thieves... <clears throat> are capable of God's, of receiving God's grace, and that includes each one of us this morning. We're looking at a passage in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and following. Let me set this up just a little bit before we move on. Several years ago, I was honored to be invited to go back and preach at my hometown, and that really was an honor. Uh, I grew up from fourth grade through high school at Vernon, Texas. 
and then it was called the Houston and Pease Street Church of Christ. Now they've moved, got a new facility, and it's called the Wilbarger Street Church of Christ. Some of you may have been there. Wonderful group of people. They loved our family. My dad preached there for eight years or so, and um, I was privileged to be back there with them. They had me preaching every night for several nights, and every noon we would have a lunch together, and I would present about a 15-20 minute lesson. On one day I came to Philippians chapter 3 at the noon lunch. One of the ladies that was there was in her either late 80s or early 90s, I never was sure. Um, She was a teacher in Bible class in that church building, Sunday school and Wednesday nights, continuously year after year while we were there and had continued doing that. I remember being in her Wednesday night class where we were trained in memorizing scripture and learning so many good things. I went to her home one day uh, prior to this lunch uh, meeting and and preaching, and uh, I dared, I I didn't know it was going to be offensive, I thought when you get it that old you're proud of your age, and I dared to ask her age. It was obvious that she was offended. I, I should never have asked, I have never asked a lady since that time. Never ever will I ask again. How old are you? But on this particular occasion, beloved uh, first grade teacher in elementary for many, many years, never married, didn't have any children, devoted to God's word, read it every day, didn't miss every single time the church doors were opened. She listened to me preach that day, and she came up to me afterwards reciting part of what I had said to her in the sermon. She said, Charles, I have to admit that I know about Jesus, but I don't think I know him. I don't think I know him. There are a lot of us in the church who, by coming to the church building, by teaching Bible classes, by studying the Word, by memorizing Scripture, and a variety of other things that might include almost every night something related to church activities, we would have to admit that we know a lot about Jesus Christ. But maybe we don't know Him personally. There is a difference. The knowledge that you have of any person in this assembly this morning began with an introduction. You began with a conversation. You began with time that was spent with each other, and over the years, weeks, months, and then years, you may have come to the point where you say, I know him really well. He's a close friend. But there are still many things you don't know about him or her. And were you to open your heart and share some of those things that are secretive, some of those things that might even bear shame or bring it or embarrassment, then you would really know. You would be closer to that person. Some of us who are in Christ, we've been in Christ since baptism, and maybe that's 50 years ago. Maybe it's more than that. But like the little boy who fell out of his bed, he was asked by his mother, what happened? He said, I stayed too close to where I got in. That's where we are. Some of us 
have stayed too close to where we got into a relationship with Christ. We got to know a little bit about his ministry. We're not even sure how long he, he uh, ministered, roughly three, three and a half years. We know a few of his, of his miracles. We know that first one, water to wine. What a, what a great celebration that was recorded in John's gospel, as are several of the miracles from the beginning of his ministries. We know um, the, the story about uh, raising Lazarus from the dead. We know about healing the blind. We know about the, the guy that was let through the hole in the ceiling. And, and Jesus, instead of healing him, said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And we, we're baffled with the Pharisees, but we hear the rest of the story as Jesus explains that I can not only raise someone from their crippledness and lameness, I can also forgive their sins, which challenged the Pharisees. We know about some of his statements in the Sermon on the Mount, but we're not sure what to do with them because he challenges us and convicts us, and we want to move on to where we see him with the children, welcoming them. We're not sure about that crucifixion scene, but we're thankful that we believe that the message is clear that it's because of what he suffered on that cross, as we just sang. It's because of that that we have freedom from sin. We know the truth, but the truth has not set us free. Maybe we don't know the truth. Who is Jesus, though, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? We don't personally know the liberty that is ours that comes from knowing Jesus with intimacy because we spend enough time with him and because we have decided repeatedly, hour after hour, to trust him. I want you to look at a passage uh, that I think we'll have up here. Let's go ahead with Philippians 3, uh, 7 and following. I'm going to tell you what comes before these verses. Paul is writing a, a, a letter that we call Philippians. I love it. Uh, sometimes I think more than any other part of Scripture. <laughs> but then I think about some of the others and I can't say that. There's so many beautiful, challenging, wonderful per, uh, Scriptures that, that help us and encourage us. Uh, in Philippians, Paul is writing to a church that he knows and he loves. And over and over in this letter, 17 times he says, I want you to rejoice, or he talks about joy. It is the epistle of joy. And... Uh, and yet, that church began with great challenge and, and sufferings. Uh, Paul and, and uh, Silas were there in Acts chapter 16, and, and they preached to Lydia, and Lydia and her household were baptized. But not long thereafter, uh, he, he and Silas were thrown into prison because of an exorcism they performed. And, and they found themselves at midnight in prison when there was an earthquake, and they were freed. And the Philippian jailer was about to take his life. You know the story. It was in that moment that the Philippian jailer was about to take his own life. Paul stopped him and said, don't do that. And the Philippian jailer asked the simple question, how can I be saved? What must I do to be saved? Well, he meant, I think, he meant, how do I get out of the fix I'm in? Because if I lose all of you prisoners, I'm going to be killed. I'm in charge of you guys. And despite the earthquake... I need you guys to stay right here. Paul said, what you need to do is something far better than getting out of this fix. You've got to get out of a fix that eternally has you damned to hell if you don't know Jesus Christ and put your faith in Him. It wasn't long after that as Paul explained to him who Jesus was and what he had done that the Philippian jailer 
joined Lydia and her household and formed the nucleus of that church in Philippi. Paul and Silas still had to deal with uh, uh, the jail and the officials in Philippi and a few other things. But later, years later, toward the end of Paul's life, he's writing back to them in this letter, and Paul is challenging them. Despite the division in their ranks, despite the problems in the church, he starts chapter 3 by saying, I'm going to tell you again, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4 begins the same way, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. There is reason to rejoice even in the midst of sufferings, setbacks, squabbles, divisions, arguments, and everything else. If we look at what is steady, if we look at what is the anchor of our life in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So at the beginning of this chapter, Paul says, there are people among you who are insisting that you perform circumcision on Gentiles. We don't like to talk about circumcision, but it's prominent in the Old Testament. It's prominent in the New Testament. When the Gentiles came to Jesus Christ, the Jews didn't know what to do with them. On the eighth day of a little Jewish, Jewish boy's life, he was circumcised across the board. It didn't matter. Any other part of his life, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Why? Because that was a dedication to God. That was a covenant agreement that they had that went all the way back to Abraham. You can trace it from Genesis forward. And so the Jews became known as the circumcision. When, Gent when they became, when some Jews became Christians and Gentiles were also brought in with the beginning of Acts chapter 10 and Cornelius, they didn't know what to do with Cornelius. They didn't know what to do with the Gentiles. They had to have a big church council in Acts chapter 15 and talk about what do we do with the Gentiles. Do they have to be circumcised in order to conform to the Old Testament law that we've been observing so that they can be saved by circumcision? And the answer is clear, revealed by God through Paul and others. No, absolutely not. No, 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 in all capital letters with bold and exclamation points. No, circumcision is not required. What is required is faith. What is required is trusting Jesus Christ. And yes, they gave them a few other rules to follow about eating or drinking blood in chapter, Acts chapter 15, forbidden. But when it comes to Philippians 3, Paul says, Look, I, have been, I was circumcised. I got reasons for confidence in the flesh. Like those who insist on circumcision, who put their confidence and their pride in their flesh, in their physical changes in their life because of their commitment, I can boast even more. He said, I have all more reasons than they have. Number one, circumcised on the eighth day. Number two, of the people of Israel. Number three, of the tribe of Benjamin. That's the tribe from which the first king came, Saul. That's the tribe with special, um, as the youngest of the 12 tribes, the, the, the youngest son, the brother of Joseph. Uh, and, he, and he goes on to say, a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning I can still speak the Hebrew, Hebrew language. Uh, Paul goes on. Uh, he says, uh, as to regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Uh, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to legal righteousness, faultless. Those six things Paul lists as reasons for confidence in his flesh. Not one of them is terrible, 
except persecuting the church, but he did it in good conscience. He did it knowing that this was what God would have me to do because I'm a good Jew. I'm convinced the longer I study the life of Paul that he was probably a member of the Sanhedrin court. He was on his way to the top. He would probably have become the leader of the Sanhedrin among the Jewish people, trained by Gamaliel, uh, uh, highly respected, zealous, energetic, applauded, admired, respected. But do you remember what happened in Acts chapter 9? A total U-turn in Paul's life. There was a light that blinded him. He was stopped in his tracks. He's headed to Damascus to persecute Christians. And all of a sudden, everything changes because a voice comes from heaven and challenges Paul when he was Saul and asks him why he was persecuting Jesus. Persecuting me, the voice Jesus speaking to him. That changed everything. And now Paul says, whatever was gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Let me pause there. What Paul is really saying in the Greek is, I consider them manure. I consider them dung. I consider them the, the worst rubbish that you can think of, the kind that stinks, the kind I want to get away from. I don't want to touch it. I regard every reason that I had for confidence and boasting in the flesh, I regard it by comparison to the surpassing excellency of knowing Christ as waste, rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Let's pause for just a second before we go to the next slide. Paul says that when I came to know Christ, the surpassing excellence, the supremacy, the wonder, the the fantastic nature of knowing Christ and knowing that He was the Messiah that I was anticipating. He was the one I should be worshiping instead of persecuting. He is not the leader of a sect of Judaism. No, He is the Savior. He's the Son of God. He's the one through whom and by whom I am saved because of what He accomplished on the cross. He said, that made me get a whole new perspective on everything else that I had valued. Let's go to chapter, I mean, the same uh, scripture, the next verse, verse 10. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of the resurrection and participation in the sufferings, beginning, beginning like him in his, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul said, you know, you think about it, Paul's been converted years ago. He's told his story in chapter 9 of Acts, or, or Luke told it. He himself, Paul, told it in uh, Acts 22 and Acts 26. Paul has told his story briefly in Galatians chapter 1. Paul has traveled widely. Paul has preached in so many different places. Paul has been through 
all kinds of experiences, including shipwreck and near death and sufferings and beatings that he lists to the Corinthians. Paul's been through all this, and yet he says, I still am growing in my knowledge of Christ. I want to know Christ. It's not something, he says later, that I've already attained. It's not something that I've already got tucked away. It's uh, on a plaque or a certificate on my wall. No, I'm still growing. I'm still moving in the direction of knowing Christ. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. Everywhere in Paul's writings, there is a reference, or many places, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 3, there is a reference to the resurrection power. Romans chapter 6 challenges us to know that when we're baptized into Christ, we are raised to what? Newness of life. We're raised up from the baptismal waters to walk in newness, resurrection, if you please, because we have imitated Christ in dying to ourselves, in being buried in the tomb, in our case of baptismal waters, and now to walk in newness of life, that resurrection power is ours at the beginning of our faith walk with Jesus. And this morning, if you haven't been baptized into Christ, it's the perfect day. You've waited too long. If you knew you needed to, now you know. But if you already knew, you've put it off long enough. Today is the day to be baptized into Christ, to begin that walk of newness in Christ. But you don't want to stay where you begin. You don't want to fall out of the bed because you stayed too close to the edge. You want to grow deeper in love with Jesus Christ. You want to participate. Notice, you want to participate in the sufferings. The NIV in an earlier version says, I want to know the fellowship of sharing in the sufferings. You know, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, Anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted have you been there very few of us really have we live in a nation that uh, at least for the most part still recognizes christianity Uh, less and less people are recognizing it and respecting it and somehow or another they want to label all of us hate groups if we don't agree with uh, same-sex marriage and a variety of other things that are on their agenda it's a political agenda And yes, there is suffering involved. But thank God we live in a nation that is largely still, and in many cases, certainly in the rural, more of the rural areas, is uh, Christian in nature. But it doesn't matter what the government espouses. It doesn't matter what happens around us. What happens, what, what happens is important. It happens in our hearts. Even when there is opposition, and there will be opposition, Paul said that, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, If you want to live a godly life, if you act on that desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. It may come to a teenager through a bully. It may come in your workplace if you refuse to lie or do what the boss tells you to do do, and it's illegal. It may come in a variety of other ways, but you will be labeled, you will be blackballed at some point, and you will be kicked out of some kind of a club or an organization or affiliation because of your Christian faith. I believe that. I've seen it happen. I've experienced it. What do we do about it? We want to keep knowing Christ, to know the power of His resurrection. We want to participate in His sufferings. We want to become like Him in His death. What does that mean? I want to stop insisting on my own way. 
I want to keep growing away from selfishness and toward unselfishness. I want to have more compassion. I want to know the kindness that prays for the people who drive the nails in my hands and says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Becoming like him in his death and somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I believe in that last phrase, Paul is referring to the resurrection at the end. The resurrection that is beyond what happens when we're baptized. Yes, we are renewed. Yes, we walk in newness of life. But at the end, we may have been buried. We may not have been buried. We may have been buried for a very long time. But in any case, we are promised by Scripture after Scripture, especially 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that there is resurrection. Every one of us as faithful believers, there is resurrection to be caught up in heaven with the Lord Jesus. And then let's go to the last section uh, of verses here. Paul adds these verses uh, to help you know his resolve, his mission, his goal. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on. That's a word that indicates a striving, like, a, like an athlete who's running a race. Uh, you've seen, as they come to the finish line, they're leading their chin out. They're leading their, their chest out. Their legs are flailing behind them, but they don't care if they fall. <laughs> they know they're at the end of that race, and they've got to get in front of their competitor. Thank God we're not competing with each other. Thank God you don't have to race against me and I don't have to race against you or you against somebody else in this room or around the world. There are far better Christians than any of us. Better? Not really. Not really. All of us are sinners. All of us need forgiveness. I don't care how good you are, you're not getting in on your righteousness. Paul says, I'm through with that. The legalistic righteousness that is my own, he talks about it here. I'm through with that. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, notice, one thing, Paul says, at this point, late in his life and his ministry, he says, I am forgetting what is behind and I'm straining toward what is ahead I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of a man who knows he has not arrived, but he is assured of victory. He is assured of victory not by his achievement, not by his goodness, not by his wonderful qualities, not by his uh, hard work. He is assured of victory because the righteousness is not his own. It is righteousness not achieved by obedience to a law. It is righteousness not based upon how deeply you went into the waters in baptism. It is righteousness based upon the accomplishment of Jesus Christ and nobody else. Nobody else will determine your righteousness except Jesus Christ by his cross, by his sacrifice, and by the forgiveness that he awards to you. There's one more passage I have chosen to share with you up on the screen. It's John 17. Jesus is praying toward the end of his life. It's a great prayer. It takes up the whole chapter. It's a beautiful prayer for unity 
for the apostles that he's about to leave after death. It's a, it's a prayer for many. It's a beautiful prayer. We call it uh, the unity prayer. It ought to be called the Lord's Prayer <laughs> uh, instead of the one in, in Matthew and Luke. But here's what Jesus prays at the beginning. He says, now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. It's not anything short of knowing with intimacy. Gnosko is the Greek word for know. And very often it was used to translate the description or translate the, the relationship that a husband had with a wife, that a wife had with a husband in sexual intercourse. The intimacy that mates know and blessed by God in that because God is the one who invented all that, created all that, and wants us to enjoy that. That kind of knowledge, I know it may sound inappropriate, it may not sync with you right now, but that kind of intimate knowledge, close relationship, is what God wants with us, is what Jesus wants with us. And he says that's eternal life when you know God, when you know Christ Jesus who was sent by God to us. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Let's go on to that one. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to know the participation. I want to share in the sufferings. I want to become like him in his death and somehow attain at the end to the resurrection from the dead. What happens? What what? What has to happen for you to know Christ in that way? There are a lot of uh, possible answers to that question. But I'm going to give you three real quickly. Number one, it takes time. Time, instead of watching television, even the NFL, as much as I love it, it takes time in God's Word. It takes time not to memorize Scripture in order to be proud of your accomplishment, but to soak in the challenges of God's Word. When you hear Jesus say, when you are not at ease or at peace with your brother, you're about to partake of a communion, you go get at peace with him before you bring your offering. The challenges that... that call us to stop judging the challenges that turn up, that challenge us to turn the other cheek to go the extra mile to give with good measure knowing that that's what's going to come back to us you just take verse by verse through the sermon on the mount and let it sink in to know him to know the quality of his teaching but more importantly the quality of his life it takes time Every day in God's Word. Get away by yourself. Find 15 minutes, if nothing else, and read God's Word. But please, keep coming back to the Gospels with your eyes on Jesus. Keep coming back to the Gospels. Leviticus is hard to read. It's hard to understand. And it might discourage you from serious Bible study. But come back to the Gospels. Go to Deuteronomy. Go to Revelation. But keep coming back to the Gospels and read 
Read something from the Gospels every day. Secondly, it takes talk. And I'm talking about prayer. Some, someone has called prayer the, the basis for vitality in the Christian life. It is the source of life. Without talking to Christ, without unloading our burdens, without opening our hearts to the man, the one who came opening his heart to us. It's not just coming to know Christ. It's through prayer you come to know yourself. As you read scriptures and you pray to God about it, you say, I don't understand this. You say, oh, I do, and that's new, and thank you, Lord, for that. Or you say, please help me today to put this into action because this is convicting and I'm not comfortable with it. It takes talk. And finally, most importantly, it takes trust. To trust in someone, to know that they are trustworthy, you have to take a risk. Have you noticed that? You gave a responsibility to your teenage son or daughter, not because you had seen them accomplish that before, but because you wanted to know if they were reliable. Most of us in the Christian faith walk in a very straight line that doesn't take a risk at all. We've never stepped onto a boat or a plane that would take us to a far place in the world to do mission work. We've never trusted God to provide food on a table when we had money in our bank account and we knew plenty of it to buy the next meal at the local grocery. Is there a reckless initiative in your life that dares to step out where Jesus Christ has to prove himself trustworthy or will you stay in the narrow, safe confines of what you've always done and always provided on your own and sometimes being very proud and confident in your flesh. Paul says, no, 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 no. Count it all rubbish. Anything that you've accomplished, anything that's been good in your life, by comparison on your own, by comparison to knowing Christ, is garbage. So take time for Jesus. Make sure you're talking to Him. Communication is a key to a relationship. You know that's true in marriage. It's true with Jesus Christ. And finally, take a risk. Take a risk. Obey Jesus in a way that challenges you to do more than you've done and that will prove, it will prove the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at that passage in, in uh, Philippians 3 again, uh, there's a verse, uh, it's, it's not one that's up on the screen or will be up on the screen, but I've got to get back to it here real quick. I want to finish with this. I promise I'm finishing. By the way, chapter 3, Paul begins in the middle of his, of his letter to the Philippians with the word finally, so you know he did the same thing. Uh, Paul says, verse 8, chapter 3 of Philippians, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The key really is in those last two words. My Lord. Is he your Lord? Job in uh, Job chapter 19 verse 25 said, I know that my Redeemer lives. How could Job know that? He didn't know who the Redeemer was. But he knew that he lives. Now we know who he is. We know what he did. We know so many details about his life 
his sacrifice and his resurrection. And because of that, he calls us to deeper, deeper relationship with him. When, when Peter stepped out of that boat and began to walk on the water, we all like to make fun of him because he, he later looked away from Jesus and he went into the water. But let me tell you something. When he stepped out on that water and was able to walk on that water briefly, it was because he took a risk, people. He dared to do more than was within his comfort zone. He'd never done it before, and I doubt he ever did it again. But let me tell you, he now knows. After that experience, he began to know, and he would tell anybody everywhere the joy of taking a risk with Jesus and proving that he is faithful, that he is trustworthy. May God bless us. We stand now to sing. Would you come?